invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. The title of the message is To God Be the Glory. And I just want to tell you all week I've struggled with knowing my limitations and our limitations as humans to even understand the glory of God. When we say to God be the glory and the music we've sang this morning about the glory of God, glory to God. It's been my prayer this week that we would at least get it a little bit today. Would at least catch a glimpse of that. I was thinking this week just about how vast God is, and I tried to put that in human terms, and I thought about things like, you know, what is the deepest point on earth? I'm talking about like not going to the center of the earth where you burn up, but like the depths of the ocean. It's a place called Challenger Deep. It's in the Mariana Trench. It's the deepest point in earth's ocean. The bottom is over 35,000 feet below sea level. Just to give you a little bit of perspective, the tallest mountain is Mount Everest. If you were to put Mount Everest in that trench, it would be covered with over a mile of water. You think even about the highest mountain. We think of Mount Everest, and yes, it's the highest mountain from the base, but if you went from the center of the earth to the peak of a mountain, or if you went from the top of a mountain to outer space, There's actually another mountain that comes closer because it's on the equator. Because the earth is a sphere, there's actually a mountain uh, in in Ecuador, Mount Chimborazo, that is actually quite a bit higher, at least quite a bit further from the center of the earth and quite a bit higher, closer to outer space. And then you just look up at the stars and you think about how many billions of stars there are and how far away they are. It's vast, and yet to think that God can hold all that in the palm of His hand. He created all of it. He's bigger than it. He created it. He's over all of it. I think as Paul concludes chapter 11, he's taken 11 chapters. And keep in mind, when you read read Scripture, Paul didn't write this letter and say, okay, this is chapter 1, verse 1. He just wrote a letter. Men have come back later and we've tried to put it in manageable segments and so we've made 16 chapters out of this letter to the Romans. The first 11 chapters have been so rich with theology, not that there's not practical parts to it, but he takes a turn at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 where it becomes a little bit more of so what. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 have been really addressed to the church in Rome about the Jews, of which Paul was one of. In fact, Paul's heart broke over the lostness of his own people. Paul said, I, I could almost wish and pray that I would be accursed so that my family, this Jewish family, would come to faith in Christ. And in chapter 11, he says such things. One of my favorite verses is verse 6. Now, we're... This isn't the part we're preaching from, but just to give you a few verses for context. He says, it is by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's been such a theme for the first 11 chapters of Romans, capsulized so well in verse 6 of chapter 11. If it's by works, then grace is no longer grace. What is he saying? Folks, you are saved by grace. It is the cross 
plus nothing. Grace is what you don't deserve. And what had the Jews been doing? They had been bringing things to God, hoping that this would earn them a standing with God. How do we then as Gentiles or Greeks, how do we who are non-Jews who come to Christ, how do we, what's our attitude then towards that? And again, just to give you some context, in verse 17 he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So we who've kind of come late to the game, so to speak, don't become arrogant and look at this chosen nation of Israel and have arrogant feelings. I mean, you know, at times we, we almost want to say, why don't you get it? Well, folks, look at your own life. Why don't I get it? You look at the nation of Israel, which is a nation that I've just grown to love. In fact, this next year uh, we plan our fourth trip. Uh, back to take groups there. If you're interested in that, here's a little commercial. There's some information out on the, the table in the lobby if you'd like to go with some of us from the chapel on a trip to the Holy Land in January. We'll have a meeting next Monday night at 7 o'clock in the little chapel. And you say, well, you know, what's the big deal about Israel? You think about the fact that Israel is just slightly larger than New Jersey. In fact, it's smaller than another country in South America, Belize. How many times do you ever see Belize in the news? Not very often. I've heard of it because I've known people that have gone there on mission trips. But Israel, this pivotal nation, chosen people of God. And so Paul wraps up chapter 11 with, chapter, with verses 33 through 36. Let me, let me read those to you, and let's just unpack a little bit of that. Just two points this morning in our message. First, the glory of God. Listen to Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul concludes this three-chapter section about the Jews. He concludes this 11 chapters where he's really unpacked how much God has done for us. We've seen verses like, but God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In studying Romans this summer, I've been overwhelmed with this thought. How much God has done. And so what's Paul saying? He deserves glory and honor for that. And Paul's just trying to give them a reminder with words like, Oh, the depth. Oh, the mystery, literally, of his riches. Folks, we only catch a glimpse. When we understand just how good God is and just how deep are his riches. Oh, the depth of the riches. Two things. Wisdom. And knowledge. His wisdom and knowledge are deep. What's the difference in knowledge and wisdom? I'll give you a very simple definition. Don't run too far with this. 
But knowledge is having all the facts. Knowledge is having the information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. When I was 13 years old, I thought I knew everything. But I can promise you, I didn't have much wisdom. The older I get, Lori, I'm pushing 50 also. I'm just pushing from the other side. The older I get, I realize how little I know. In fact, someone said, you know, with the information superhighway, the knowledge that compounds every day. I read this this week. If you started at the age of 21 and read 24 hours a day all the information that's available, when you got to be 70 years old, you'd be one and a half million years behind because of the race that knowledge, just the pace of knowledge. Folks, let me just say, knowing information is not beneficial without wisdom. How do we get wisdom? James tells us if you lack wisdom, ask from God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. Why do we have to ask? Let let me just tell you, one of the most humbling things is to finally realize I don't know everything. And I don't even know how to apply what I know. And you come in a very humble state and acknowledge, God, you have depth of riches and wisdom. I'm just not the sharpest tool in the drawer here. And so Paul is saying, when you, you just catch a glimpse, you realize how deep God is, the more you get to know Him and realize there's so much more there than I'll ever know. So we talk about this trench in the ocean that's over 35,000 feet deep. That's a drop in the bucket. Look how deep the riches of God are. And His ways are unfathomable. Excuse me, I missed one. His judgments are unsearchable. His judgments are really beyond us being able to search them out. In fact, God's ways are not our ways. We look at things that God decides, and we may even think in our own arrogant mindset, you know, I wouldn't have done it that way. And let me just say this. You ought to be really glad that I'm not God. Because I would have probably just obliterated people, man. I mean, I give you like two chances, you're done. And then I remind, I remind myself, well, you've been given more than two chances. I'm so glad that God's judgments don't treat us the way we deserve to be treated. His ways are, his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. The word ways means a mode or a road or a course. It's unfathomable. Literally, it's not tracked out. It means he's left footprints behind, but you can't follow them. Why? Because he's God, and his ways are not our ways. And then he asks this three questions. Who, who can know the mind of the Lord? Who could become his counselor? Who first gave anything to him? When you realize that God is eternal, that he has always existed And regardless of how long you've been on the scene, take man in general, there's nothing about us that we can go to God and say, here's something you need. I've said this enough time in this pulpit that folks who are regular have got tired of me mentioning this. The billboard's been taken down, but there used to be a billboard in Merle's Inlet. It said, God needs you. 
I about swerved off the road the first time I saw it. God doesn't need you. I got better news. God wants you, but he doesn't need you. I don't add to his glory. I can bring him glory. I can shine the light on him. But the kingdom of heaven does not rise and fall on me. God's not up in heaven saying, whoop, Robert messed up again. What are we going to do? And he's not saying the same thing about you either. You see, God wants us. God loves us enough to do something incredible. He sent his son to die for us so that we could know him. But his ways are not our ways. Who, who could first give him something that, that they would need to be paid back? God doesn't owe us anything. And then he puts it in perspective. From him, through him, and to him are all things. From him, the origin, the beginning point. Through him, the channel of the act. To him, the ending point are all things. Is there anything left out of all? When you say all, did we leave anything out? No, it means any, every, the whole. It means all of it are to him. Put a different way, everything begins, continues, and ends with God. That's the big picture that God is, that Paul is trying to bring right here at the end of chapter 11. He's described everything that God's done for us. Now he's big, this big picture to get to this one line. To God, to Him, be glory forever. The Greek word for glory is the word doxal. We get the word doxology from that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But when I say that I'm supposed to bring glory to God, in fact, it is the chief end of man to glorify God. You want to know what your purpose is on life, on earth? It's to glorify God. That's it. Put it in a nutshell. That's what we're to do. Well, then how do you do that? If the word's so hard to define, the word glory means an opinion or an estimate. And yet that's just scratching at the surface of understanding glory. It means the honor resulting from a good opinion. But it also has this idea of brightness and, and shining and this light. I, these words are not on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, look at Revelation chapter 21. and Just a picture from heaven. And If you don't have Scripture in front of you, just listen as I read. Just this understanding of God's glory. We really don't get it. John writes in, chap in chapter 21, verse 10, and he carried me away into the, in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. What does that look like? Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God is so bright, is so brilliant. Revelation goes on to say, the gates will never be closed. The gates of the cities were always closed at nighttime. In heaven there will be no night. We also won't need a flashlight, a lamp. We won't need the sun or the moon to, to shed light in heaven. Why? Because the glory of God 
is that bright. There'll be no night. Folks, do you catch a glimpse of, do you just get an idea of the vastness of what Paul is talking about? And I think in our mindset, it's just hard to get that. But if our chief end of our life, the chief end of man is to glorify God, then I think I would put it this way. And again, oversimplified, I guess. Think of a big spotlight. And what you're to do with your life is to make sure that light stays on God. In fact, maybe to put it in more spiritual terms, because you don't have any light without Christ. And the Bible says you're the light of the world. It'd almost be more like we're a mirror. And all we're doing is simply reflecting the glory of God back to God. Put simpler, if you live your life, who's getting noticed? If you get noticed for anything in life, it should be that notice gets reflected back to, I don't get credit for any of this. I don't get credit for what I've done. It's only because of God. It is because of Jesus through my life that I do anything. So Paul is saying, he deserves the honor you don't. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we turn the chapter then to chapter 12. The last point is just really two verses as he begins kind of the so what. Paul's made a great case in these 11 chapters, but now he says, okay, therefore. Now, this isn't the first therefore in Romans, but it's an important therefore. Because it's building not just on these three verses we've read or four verses we've read, but it builds all the way back to chapter 1, and it comes all the way for these 11 chapters. He says, because of what God has done, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What does it take to motivate you? Does it take a bribe? I've been at McDonald's and heard a mom say to a child, all right, if you'll be good, I'll get you the Happy Meal. Or if you'll be good, I'll let you play five extra minutes on the playground. Does it take that for you? Does it take a threat? I remember my dad used to say this. I don't, I don't always remember what it was that preceded this, but he would end up saying, or else. You ever heard that one? And, and I, never, I never said, or else what? What are my options? I knew or else wasn't going to be good. I knew I better do whatever it was he told me to do because I didn't want what came after that. Does it take or else? Here's the way Paul puts it. Paul says, I urge you. I don't know how strong that word is, but it's this word. It means to call near to help. For the Greek scholars in the room, it's the form of the word paraclete. It's the word used of the Holy Spirit, our helper. Paul says, "Let me. I brought you in here with these first 11 chapters. Just get real close to me because I want to help you with something. I want to urge you to do something. Now, Paul had some authority as an apostle. And so this word really carries with it the weight of command. This isn't just Paul said, let me make a suggestion based on how good God is. Let me just suggest you do this. No, it's stronger than that. 
things. Let me urge you. Let me beseech you. Really three things then that he urges them to do. And he predicates it all on the mercies of God. The reason that Paul is saying, I want you to do these three things is because of what I've told you about in 11 chapters. God has not treated you like you deserve. That's what the word mercy means. Not receiving what you deserve. Based on the mercy of God. In fact, you'll only want to do these things if you've been saved by His mercy. How does Paul put it? I urge you, brothers. I urge you, fellow believers. You've been saved by faith. Because of God's grace offered to you. Because of this mercy that He has shown you. He's going to ask them to sacrifice. And here's the neat thing. The heathen that Paul, were around Paul at this time, they sacrificed to receive God's mercy. They had to bring sacrifices to these gods that they worshipped that were made out of stone or some precious metal or something. And they would sacrifice to these gods hoping he would give them mercy. Here's the difference with God. We make sacrifices because we've received his mercy. And so Paul says, I urge you, based on this mercy that you've received, you haven't received what you deserve. God's given you his grace. First thing, present your bodies. The word present means to stand beside or exhibit. But this word translated the Greek translation from the Old Testament, the Septuagint, used this word to describe what the priest would do. In the Old Testament days and even in the New Testament days, the times of Christ, the times of Paul, people would come to the temple to offer sacrifice. And they would bring this spotless animal up before the priest. And the priest would identify, this animal is yours. This represents you. And the priest would kill the animal sprinkle the blood, and burn the body. That was part of the sacrifice. They were used to that. So when they heard the word sacrifice, that's what came to their mind. But Paul says, you're a living sacrifice. And although that animal was alive when it entered the temple, it wasn't alive when it left. It left as an ash because it was burned up. So Paul says, present your bodies. And it's a continuing thing. See, the flesh is being corrupted. So every day we have to come before God and say, God, I'm I'm presenting, I'm offering as a sacrifice who I am. Not just this physical substance, but everything that I am, God, is yours. Offer that as a sacrifice. A living, holy sacrifice. Holy means separated for a purpose. The Bible says you're no longer your own. You've been bought. For the price, you now belong to God if you're a child of God. So as believers, we can present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice because that's what's acceptable to God. The word acceptable means fully pleasing, fully agreeable. Giving God all of you is all that's acceptable to Him. And he finishes that thought with the fact that's your spiritual service of worship. In fact, the word that he uses there sounds a lot like our word logic. It means the same thing. In fact, some of your translations say this is your reasonable service of worship. This is what is logical. Based on the mercies of God, based on everything that God's done for you, what else would you do but come before God and say, God, I give you all that I am. 
because you deserve it all. You are Lord of all. You've got all of me. So Paul said that's the first thing. Based on giving, and this is the way we give God glory. This is the way we shine the light back to Him to say He is worthy of it all as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God. Second thing he says is, don't be conformed to this world. Don't become like this world. Don't be pressed into the mold of this world. If you've ever put jello into a mold that had all these designs in it, after it sits in the refrigerator for a little while, a few hours, you can dump it upside down, take the mold away, and the pattern's still there. Folks, here's the problem we have with this world. This world wants to press you into its jello mold. This world wants you to look like this world. Be careful as believers, teenagers. Be careful because the world wants you to look like them. They get real uncomfortable if you don't talk like they do, act like they do, go where they do. And Paul is saying, don't get trapped into looking like this world. Why? Because this world's not your home. He's going to say in a minute, be transformed. Well, it basically means don't be conformed to this world because there's another world that you belong to. That's what you ought to look like. Don't look like this world. And this world does a great job of making itself attractive. That's what commercials are all about. That's what billboards and advertisements are all about. You need this. Buy this. Look this way. Act this way. Don't be conformed to this world, but on the other hand, be transformed. It's the word metamorphosis. You ever seen a little worm? That worm eventually becomes a moth or a butterfly, a little caterpillar. I learned something this week. If you're a science teacher, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I always thought of butterflies coming out of cocoons, and moths come out of cocoons. Butterflies come out of this chrysolite, chrysalis thing that forms on their bodies. Any science teachers here? Am I close? Howie, are you a science teacher? But you know what I'm talking about. Really? Isn't that cool, though? It takes about 10 to 15 days for this caterpillar that can't fly, by the way. Two weeks later, it can fly. And it looks nothing like it did when it entered into this state of metamorphosis. Tadpoles. Did a little bit of study, research this week on tadpoles. And you're thinking, dude, you need to get a life. (laughs) Tadpoles could take anywhere from several weeks or months up to years, depending on what species of frog it is, maybe up to three years. I'm thinking, I've seen tadpoles out in those little... Mud puddles in the backyard, and I'm thinking, those puddles don't last three years. So what happens? Well, the tadpole never makes it to metamorphosis. But the tadpole that can swim underwater, has gills and all that, all of a sudden develops legs. It doesn't all of a sudden. It takes a while. That's metamorphosis. What does it mean? It means it looked one way coming in. It looked a different way going out. That's what the word Paul is using to say. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into this world. Why? Because this world is lost. This world one day will melt with intense heat. Everything you see, we're not taking any of it with us. A new Jerusalem's coming down. That's what John talked about in Revelation. So don't get too attached to this. 
you've ever seen the movie Christmas Vacation, when they're looking out the window, and he said, that there's an RV. Don't take a liking with it, because we're taking it with us when we leave here next month. Folks, if you remember what that RV looked like, that's the picture you ought to have of the world. But you're not taking it with you when you leave. So don't get too conformed here. Don't be pressed into this. But understand, man, our citizenship is somewhere else. So be transformed. How does that happen? How does metamorphosis take place in your life? How do you look different coming out the other end than you did when you entered? It's because your mind's being renewed. Because, see, when you were born, your mind was stamped with an imprint. I want to be just like this world. You come to Christ and something changes. The stuff of this world doesn't satisfy. You come to Christ and He begins a work in you that He's promised to finish. He starts renewing your mind. Now, folks, that happens by doing things like you're doing today. Going to church. Reading your Bible. Studying books about God. Getting in small group opportunities where you're accountable to other people to learn more. Because here's where the battles fought. So Paul says these three things. Present your bodies. Don't be conformed. And the best thing is this. Be transformed. That's not something you do by just going... It's a work that God is doing in you. It's not your struggle. But it's by allowing God to have His work in your life. So that. Here's why that happens. So that you prove to the rest of the world that God's will really is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me ask you this question as we close. What does your life say about God's will? Does what people see about the way you live the Christian life, does it demonstrate that God's will is good, that God's will is acceptable, and that God's will is perfect or complete? Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. And God, just again, the acknowledgement that you, you deserve all glory. God, help us. God, help us live lives that reflect back just who you are. Help the world to see in our lives a reflection of the brightness, the majesty, the glory of God. Not so that we get the pats on the back, not so the attention stays with us, but so that it is deflected and reflected to a holy God who's worthy. And then God, help us to take the so what, the practical application of that. Because of your goodness, because of what you have done in our lives, God, would we come with everything we are and lay it before you and say, here's my sacrifice, Father. You deserve it all. Holding nothing back, I give it all to you. Help us to live that kind of life this week and next week in surrendered obedience to a loving Father. We pray this in Christ's name.